Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Really glad you could join us here. I'm talking with Moshe Vardi. He's a professor of computer science at Rice University in the US. He's a very senior and respected academic in our field and holds numerous honours and awards. The key focus of this conversation is the impact of technologies that we're creating on our society and how this challenges what computer science should be concerned about and our responsibilities to engage in these issues and address them. What he has to say, I think, speaks not only to computer scientists, but to all academics, because of the pervasive impact of technologies in our lives. And this is actually the first part of a much longer conversation with with Moshe, so I've split it into two parts. In part two, coming out as a separate podcast, we'll shift the focus to the changes and challenges in academia more generally. And he has some really interesting and provocative things to say about the increasing pressures and how we should be responding to those. So I would really encourage you to listen to this as well. He speaks with a great deal of experience and has deeply thought about these issues. So, Mashe, thank you so much for joining me because you have literally just got off a plane from the States to Vienna. So this is very generous of you uh, to give me your time here. And you're here to do a talk at a at a conference on the topic of ethics and AI. Did you say? So this is a big conference of AI developers. So it's mm. not it's not academic conference. Mm-hmm. It's one of these mm-hmm. tech conference. Yeah. And uh, I think most of the talks will be more technical, mm. but uh, I will give a talk yeah. on ethics. Right. Which yeah. is really interesting because if I look when I looked at your bio, you, you've got your you're, you're sort of a hardcore computer scientist from background. You got a PhD in 81. You did a postdoc at Stanford, 81 to 83. Worked at IBM Research, 83 to 93. So 10 years. Uh, yeah. And then you've been at Rice University since, since 93. Yeah. And your area is automated reasoning. Well, there is a part that doesn't show up in my bio. Yeah. I come from a, a long a family of many generations of mm. rabbis. Ah. And uh, I think my father would have been very happy if had I become a rabbi, except that I've become an atheist. And so I was not going to become an atheist rabbi. But there is, there is kind of in my background a lot of, a lot of uh, more than just the computer science. Right. So what do you yeah. think that background gave you then? Um, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, it's an interesting to think kind of hypothetical thinking, what would happen if I had, yeah. I didn't have this background. But, it is a background where, you know, at the core, especially in a, in a religion like a, a Judaism, it's very much on what do you do. It's a religion that's based less on, you know, what are the, the, the principles. Mm. In fact, only the first time the principles were written down were in the 12th century. It was a huge debate whether this should have been done. It's a religion that's based on what counts is what you do. What you do in terms of your work? In terms what you do in terms of uh, your conduct, and it's divided your conduct towards God and your conduct mm. to- towards other people. Mm. And there were big debates, which one is more important? Mm. 
and the conclusion was that your conduct towards other people is more important than your conduct towards God. Because so, it's, easy, it's easy to get along with God. He's usually silent. <laughs> he or she are silent. Uh, you can, it's easy to imagine that you make God happy. Much harder, much harder. You cannot fool yourself yeah. with, with, with other people. human beings. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. uh, so how did that play out in your life then? Because that sounds like a very strong, is it sort of like a, a social responsibility ethic that came through? Or You know, I, it's kind of a, almost it's a, it's a bit of, of, of an ethical or moral awakening for me in mm. the sense that uh, I was really, as you see, you can see in my bio, I'm just a hardcore kind of computer scientist, mm. you know, mm. let alpha, let, you know, let P be prime mm. and kind of something like that. And, uh, and somewhere around, actually it was for me, the, the kind of key event was when uh, Watson, I, this IBM program, won in Jeopardy in 2011. Because this AI thing that, yeah, it kind of in principle, you could say that I don't see why it wouldn't happen, you know. Mm. I, I'm a materialist, we are some kind of a machine, biological machine, evolution, but nevertheless some kind of a machine. So in principle, we should be able to build a machine that's intelligent. But this in principle leaves a lot of room when it will happen, right? Yes. And still something about, about what's on that, you know, more, more than, for example, uh, in 1997, 21 years ago, it was deep blue in chess. Yes. But that really just felt mechanical, just brute force. I mean, he just made it clear that chess ultimately just about, about brute force, at least mm. the way machine played. Human played it differently. But, but Watson just felt different and, and it's okay, what, what, what's going to happen? And I start thinking about, okay, what are the implications to society? And it became very clear that actually that it's kind of amazing that we as a discipline, and it's become much more clearer since and year by year. Yes. That uh, and and the, the story, I like the parable, I like to see here it has to do with a science fiction novel called Ender's Game. Have you read Ender's no. Game? It's a science fiction novel from the mid eighty, and I read it at the time because my teenage son was reading it, and I had to read what he read, so I'll have something to talk to, talk to him. If you had teenage children, you, you probably remember what it's like. So I would read his book, so we'll have something to talk about. And it's a book, in Enders is a, is a young boy, and he and his friends are being trained in video games. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize, they're actually fighting an intergalactic war. And then they win the game, which means they won the war. And they discover they have destroyed a civilization. By winning, the, by winning the game, they have destroyed a civilization. And that's how I feel these days. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I got into computing. It was just like a game. You know, it was a fun game. Yeah. You know, it was... Intellectually challenging. Challenging. It was like one big puzzle. Yeah. I got into it at age 16. It was yeah. just... I just... You know, the, the, having to construct a program, it's like constructing these blocks in your mind. Mm. And... It is challenging, but the rules are very clear. On the other hand, age 16s, you know, how, how girls behave was a complete <laughs> mystery to me. And so here was something that, that you could control it. If you just thought hard enough, you could control it. And so I just, to me, it was when I, I took two weeks course in Fortran, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And of course, today you tell people it sounds like we're 
But nobody was really thinking what is it going to do to society. It just was not on our on our on our uh, radar screen at all. And I think to me, just that it might be just possibility happen uh, around Watson. Yeah. And and I think since then you have still have to remember that just how every year it goes one decibel higher. Yes. And now you know this morning uh, uh, I'm opening the Financial Times. In the, on the plane, and the editorial from the Financial Times says, Facebook cannot uh, regulate itself. We are going to regulate it. This is now the, the, the very poor business. Financial Times says, we must regulate Facebook because it is not a responsible wow. corporation. Mm. So there has been just a, a mm. sea change mm. in uh, in how we view. Suddenly, they feel like Ender. Suddenly, we are running society. Yeah. And we are poorly equipped yes. to do that. You poorly know, we, equipped. We are very poorly equipped. And nobody. Now we are starting in my department. We just had a faculty meeting just on Wednesday. Mm. Okay, last Wednesday, we, and we are going to teach a course now. I'm, I'm going to co-teach a course with another person on ethics in the in computer science. We are starting to debate. Okay, what where should it be? And after the meeting, uh, the chair came to me and he says, "Wow, I have not seen." Uh, in a long time, a meeting where there was so much engagement and consensus. Wow. So people I mean, agreed. People agreed. This right. is important. We have yeah. to do it. Yeah. In fact, we, this is, we're teaching the course. We wanted to be a communication intensive course. We kept it at, at 40 students. And people said, no, this has to be, you have to think about how to scale it. This has to be a required course. That means you have to teach it every year to 180 students. How are you going to do it? This was, the, the comment was, you're not aggressive enough yeah. about, about this. And what level are you teaching this at? First year or no, third this is year? Going to be, this is going to be like a course for, for juniors. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. what, what? Juniors for us is third year. Okay. Yeah. So they've had some experience in programming. They know what they can do from a technical point of view. Right. And this is now right. saying, and now think about what impact yeah. it's going yeah. to have. Yeah. So it's interesting that it was 2011, though, that this sort of aha moment came for yeah. you. Because yeah. if I think back as well, you know, we had the, I think we've had a few sort of step changes in technology. If we think about the emergence of the web and, you know, like early 90s, only 394, whatever, when. I mean, really, you know, it goes, you, can, you can point to, to step functions, yeah. right? The emergence yeah. of the PC. Yeah. Clearly, yes. I mean, the microprocessor, but really the PC, PC was a big, big wave. In fact, yeah. you know where you can see these waves? If you, in the United States, we have good data on compu- enrollment in computer science. 
and it goes in, 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 in zigzags. And every such technological wave leads suddenly a lot of students are becoming inter in yes. interested. Yes. So you see suddenly, first of all, interest in the early 80s. So it started, I think, United States, the first majors, uh, the first undergraduate program started in the maybe early 70s. Before that, yes. PhD program go to mid-60s, undergraduate program maybe early 70s. Yeah. And, but they are very small. I mean, who knows about computers? Mm. And then... The PC comes, suddenly you have a, bo a big boost. And then there is a decline. And then the, the internet and the web comes mm -hmm. in the mid-90s. Yes. The mid and yes. then there is another interest. And then there is another decline. Yep. And the last wave of... Um, mobile devices and mobile smart devi devices. Two things I would say, and they're tied together, I would mm. say. One was the iPhone is 2008. Yes, yes. And social social media, media kind of around the, the same time, a little earlier, but but yeah. the iPhone gave it a big boost. Yeah. So and that's yeah. the way we are on right now, and yeah. we will there will be a bus at some point, yeah. but uh, that's the way we are still on. Yeah. And I, the, the concerns that you're raising are, are brought into sharper focus with all of the public media that we've seen as well around Facebook, as you said, and election influence. And I mean, yeah. Facebook. I mean, almost you almost have to thank Facebook for if you want to teach a course in ethic, you can just open the paper. <laughs> Facebook is the appropriate you know, lesson. Is the, 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 the give yeah. you. But I mean, it's not just Facebook. I mm. mean, I mean, even you know, for example, uh, uh, Tim Cook now is coming up as against as one of the anti-Facebook. But one of the complaints is about Apple to have designed these very addictive devices. Yes. And yeah. some news coming out how in Silicon Valley, all these tech executive. Not to their children. Yes. They do not want no, no screens for the children. Which is fascinating. I just read an article about that. Um, and in fact, there was recently. a divide. I read recently there is a divide between, a, you know, in the United States, school funding is very much local. So you see differences between rich district and poor district. And rich districts have fewer screens. You think, okay, they have more money. Yes, more, be more screens. screens. No, yeah. they have money for teachers. It's yeah. the poor district yeah. that are trying to, that are doing it more with, yeah. with, with screens. Yeah. So I, I think we are in a, in a right now we are we are the you know other discipline had a bit the physicists had it in 1945. Yes. You know what is the Oppenheimer? Uh, I hear some some quote some Hindi Hindu quote. I'm a destroyer or something like that. He's quoting one of the when he's the, the first the first uh, atomic bomb. Yeah. I think was was blown. And so the physicists got suddenly a social conscience. Conscience. Then they suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we really have. We're not just playing in the lab. We have great power. Yeah. And uh, biology said it in in first time, and they're having a second now. They're having a second moment of this responsibility now with CRISPR and mm, genetic yeah. editing. And uh, so happened. I'll come back to genetic editing in a minute. But uh, there was a Silomar conference in 1975. A Silomar conference. Mm -hmm. A Silomar is a place in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a conference mm -hmm. site on the West Coast in California. In 1975, there was a conference where they start thinking about the first time about genetic engineering and try to lay some, some, some ethical guidelines for what should and should not be done with genetic engineering. The interesting thing about this new explosion, just the last few days, last week, there was again in the news, Chinese researcher has actually used it on, on, on uh, babies, on real actual babies. This is not in the lab anymore. This is now, apparently, the claims are that to, 
two genetically engineered babies were born mm. in China mm. uh, using this new genetic editing technique, uh, CRISPR. And uh, other, the news also said that a rice researcher was involved in this. So this exploded the ties. And uh, there's already the student newspaper has an editorial that we need more ethical training. Yes. That all the students should have ethics training. Yes. Because, I mean, the reality is that somehow, you know, it, to me it's an interesting development. I mean, if I had proposed just two years ago, I said every student needs to mm. get ethic training. Mm. People said, no, we have so many requirements. No, where yeah. does it come yeah. from? And suddenly the, the students are somehow feeling that we should, there should be a course in ethics to all students. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's it is really seriously taken now. Um, people understanding that we do need it, but I don't know that it's a universally accepted. Um, some I, people argue that why are we teaching ethics? Why aren't we getting ethicists into teaching? Are we really is, teaching ethics? But this is a debate now on tactics. Okay, it's different to say we should teach ethics, should be taught. And now we are, the, we are discussing who should who? be teaching yeah. ethics, yeah. okay? Um, I actually think that, um, I mean, in fact, the, I had a meeting just on Friday with the chair of the philosophy department, partly of, the, of this conversation. But uh, the course that we are preparing to teach will have maybe one lecture on, on categor categorical imperative and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. After that, it's mostly discussing case studies. Yes. It's actually look at yep. actual situation. Yeah. Look at technology. Look, look what it means. Um, a philosopher cannot teach such a course. Now, it might be a good idea to, for such a course to be co-taught. Some years ago, about 10 years ago, I had a, I bought a, a try, I bought to write a, a postdoc that would do technology and public policy. Mm-hmm. And he thought, he, he taught a course on technology and public policy. And uh, he co-taught it with a graduate student. And every week there will be two lectures. The first will be on a technology. For example, what is the technology under, underlies uh, Wikipedia? Mm -hmm. What happens when you edit? Right? It's amazing. You sit there, you edit, and everybody, you know, it's the whole world. What is the technology? And the second lecture will always be about the policy implication of this technology. Doing a retrospective look at what is the policy infrastructure that's grown up around it, or more well, part of the problem is there's no policy infrastructure. Yeah. In fact, yeah. my talk, my talk on, on uh, tomorrow will say that we're focusing too much on ethics, yes, and not enough on policy, yes. And it's almost an es es escape. This company do not do not want to be regulated, yeah. So they say, sure, sure, teach ethics to the students. This is not the solution. I mean. We have to worry about uh, drunk driving. What is the solution to drunk driving? Ethic training to, to, to drivers, drivers yeah. or laws yeah. that yeah. says, you know, what happens if, yeah. if you drink and drive, right? And so in fact, you need public, both, don't you? You need both. Ethics guide public policy. Yeah. Yeah. And a certain thing we decide that, that we are going to leave them to, the, to personal behavior. And we are not necessarily putting them in, in law and regulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we are debating what's, what's the fine line between, yeah. between these two things. And over society, you know, at some point we said in the United States there was prohibition. One should, you know, it's illegal to drink. We said it's not a good idea. Now we said, okay, just be responsible, but it's up to you. Uh, there's no magical formula. Mm. 
But to say yeah. it's, all, it's all about ethics is ignore yeah. the fact that yeah. we, we do as a society decide the rules of conduct and this is how yeah. we should do it. And, you know, I would, there is a, such a change now because if a year ago you said we should regulate companies, tech companies, people would have jumped at you. Now the Financial Times says Facebook yeah. must be regulated. Yeah. I was just going to say that many of these um, situations aren't easy to anticipate, are they? You know, to have proactive or preemptive policies in place because we often can't imagine what could have been possible well, you know, this, with technology. This is an old story, you know. What's mm. the first technology? Yeah. What's the first technology? The wheel or something. I don't know. Before fire, the wheel. Fire. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. It was yeah. amazing. It was yeah. such an amazing that the Greek mm. had the story, how mm. Prometheus stole it from the god. But that's what does it lead to? It leads to Pandora's box, right? So, mm. so we have, we always have this relationship, mm. very mixed relationship between us and technology. Mm. Technology gave us a lot of good stuff, but mm. we're also having to deal with the, with the cost of technology. And that's why I think there. we also need to train people to continuously engage with these challenging questions and issues because as we start to play with the fire and learn what it can do, we open up new possibilities and we should always be asking what's going on, what are the possible implications and trade-offs because there's no benefit for everyone. So I find it really interesting and amazing that you're doing this work you know, around the social responsibility of, of new technologies and AI and the ethics of it. And, you know, I know that you've done some really great talks on, you know, questioning the future of work future and of the role work. that yeah, that's actually technology the, is going to play. That was the first thing, the, my first angle about thinking about AI mm. was, was about the future of work. Mm. Yeah. And, in fact, the, the way it happens is in 2012, there was a, there was a Turing centenary. And uh, I was invited to, there was a conference about Turing in Manchester. And I was invited to go on a panel. And the panel was funded by the Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation, John Templeton, I think John Templeton was an investor, very religious. And when he was alive, the foundation was a bit kooky. Mm-hmm. And was funding people kind of to prove that God exists, mm-hmm. almost. Yep. Okay. But after, after he passed away, they kind of relaxed it a little bit. But the panel was going to be about the big questions. Come to the panel and talk about for 10 minutes about a big question. So I said, okay, what is, what is really a big question? What do I have about the big question? I'm a computer scientist. You know, if I was, you know, I could say, I could say what is the nature of intelligence, which I think related to artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. But then that seems maybe a bit too ambitious. So I gave 10 minute talk. If machine can do all work, what will humans do? This was just 10 minutes. It was just, I don't know, who knows, like yeah. six, six, seven slides. And, uh, and other people talked about distributed computing, this and this and that. And after the panel, you know, there was an hour long panel and nobody was interested in anything else that was there. And I had a long line of people who wanted to talk to me. Yeah. It was just a reaction from people. Yeah. It's like, Wow, this is really important to people. I mean, it was really, I just gave a, such a brief talk. I should go and find my slides from, from, from yeah. that, uh, yep. from that, from that meeting. And, uh, there was such a resonance that I said, okay, I need to go and read more and study more. I just started, you know, before that, I knew nothing mm. about, about, uh, I mm. knew just layman understanding of economic and I still have, 
uh, just a general, I mean, I mean, I mean self, self-taught dilettante, but uh, I've just been reading a lot to, to get a better yeah. picture. Yeah. And as I'm reading a lot, I've allowed myself to become more, more skeptical of the, of the economical, conventional wisdom by economists. Mm-hmm. About what? About direction of how work's going to go? You know, go? somehow, you know, economists, basically the kind of most economists, until very recently, just basically said that uh, automation does not, you know, we don't have to worry about automation. Yeah. Why? Well, because human beings always find other jobs. Mm. And, and it turns out, if you actually look into it, it's incredibly simplistic. So they say, for example, well, the Industrial Revolution happened and we've adapted. Wow. This compressing a... Uh, 200, uh, by now, what is it, about 250 years of history. Mm. It's like saying, oh, we don't have to worry about uh, about uh, fascism and Nazism. World War II happened, and here we are. So what's to worry about? I mean, it turns out if you actually look, adapting the industrial, industrial revolution mm. was long, slow, and agonizing. And 100 million people died in two communist revolutions. And so people say, oh, well, we've adapted. It's like saying, well, we won World War II, so what's the big deal? Yeah. And so, and in fact, they say things that even if you challenge them, what was it? So, so the argument, what was the argument an economist gave me? So look, if you automate things, you increase productivity. If you increase productivity, price will go down, demand will go up, voila, more yes. jobs will be generated. Yes. I said, yeah, but it doesn't tell you that there could be more jobs than before, could be fewer jobs than before. It doesn't tell you anything about or it. The what few, quality of those jobs. Or the what are, quality of mm, jobs, what skill yeah, level, yeah, all kind yeah. of thing. He said, yeah, but now we, we can just look at history. History? You're there, you dare to talk about history? You know, most economists, there are some economic historians that are very aware. And, mm. I mean, books have been written about it. Again, it's not that I'm bringing mm. any special knowledge. Most economists come up with just a very simplistic thing. Yeah. Oh, well, we've adapted. So what's to worry about? Yeah. So this is going back to the thing about us needing to take responsibility for being part of that change. I think our discipline now is facing a very, you know, this is, I think, a very unique moment for the discipline because all of, li- all of us likes to, well, you don't shave, but I shave every day. So I look at you, maybe you put makeup. I shave every day. So I look at myself in the mirror every morning. All of us, like, like most of us, think, likes to look at this person in the mirror. And to think that this is basically, I'm looking at a decent human being. And I'm doing something useful in my life. And so, I always thought that this technology we're producing, it's, it's a good technology. It's technology mm-hmm. to help people. There is this beautiful, beautiful quote from, from Leibniz, where he talked about his, his reasoning calculus, calculus ratiocinator. And he says, when we'll be able to do it, and he's maybe the first, not the first person, but one of the first, not the very first, but who come up with the idea that we will be able to mechanize reasoning to some extent. And this will be the same way that we are using glasses to help our eyes. We will have an instrument to help the mind. Right. So this okay. whole helping agenda. So this is, this is come in. That's why I always thought this is instrument to help people. Mm. But now, you know, it's a, li- a little bit like in, what is it? The sorcerer's apprentice, right? I mean, this instrument is is having a will of its own, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's proving to yeah. be, I mean, the, the, the tool has become kind of a, a monster. 
and it's not exactly clear who's in control, and yeah. it's not so clear anymore that what we are doing is, I mean, I also like to quote Edda uh, um, Lovelace. She has a letter where she corresponds with Babbage, and Babbage was dreaming of getting rich. Mm-hmm. When he finally is going to build an analytical engine, he's finally going to strike it and become rich. And she writes to him a letter saying, it's okay, I don't mind you get rich, but let's also do something for the most effective use of mankind. Ah. Beautiful, beautiful mm. quote. She's saying, let's try to think, how do we make it something which is good for society? Mm. And uh, I think that's the moment, this is the moment we are in. How do we make sure that this technology mm. is for the most effective use of mankind? How do we make sure this mm. technology for for society? And there has been an a dramatic change in our image just in the last two years, in the last year even. Image even of computer science. Of computer science, of mm-hmm. computing. Mm-hmm. Just in the past, just about year, year and a half. I mean, if you went and asked people even two, three years ago, what do you think about Silicon Valley? Well, they say, oh, innovation, cool gadget, great jobs, wealth creation. Generally, I think it would have been a positive. I didn't do the study, but I, mm. I'm guessing just by, by reading with a positive image. Suddenly, you know, it has changed now, and people are looking at Silicon Valley, and I'm, I'm collecting quotes from Iran, of course, just reading the, the mainstream media, and somebody comparing, a, a, what do you call it, Silicon Valley? Uh, Silicon Valley executive described as moral Martians. <laughs> okay? And suddenly, people, the image has changed. Uh, uh, what well, there was a segment in about about addic- addictive devices. Yes, there was a segment on Fox News, not usually my source of news, but this was about comparing tech executive to tobacco executives. Wow, that's uh, a really interesting comparison, and, and in some ways quite justified. Maybe in, justified, you know, we, something that we should we should discuss how justified it is. Yeah, but. Uh, and, you know, what, what's, what is the expression? If you don't like uh, whoever doesn't want fleas should not sleep with dogs. Mm. The distance between us and, and the industry is, is uh, you know, it's a very thin line. I mean, we get funded by the industry. Mm. Our students go to the industry. We go to visit them. Are, we meet them in conferences. It's not mm. as if they, they are, mm. you know, we are not, you know I'm, not, I'm not making product decisions, but yeah. uh, I cannot say I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Okay? I mean... My students, I have students working for Facebook, so yeah. uh, I have colleagues visiting Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, working at Facebook. So um. They're not, um, so you know, you said about looking in the mirror and sort of looking at it, someone who wants to, is, is wanting to do good work you yeah. know, and wanting to do things that helps. And one of the really interesting things about this, tech, you know, this era, and I guess technology of any era, if you, if you think back to the fire, is it is the unanticipatable impacts and influences. So we yeah. may have every intention of doing good and doing well. They ought to, they ought to help. But you know, yeah. there's yeah. lots of things we yeah. don't have control of. There's competing agendas and trade-offs. What's good for one may not be good for another. And it's, it's getting increasingly complicated. And it's radically changing society as well. And we're in the midst of it. And that's why I think this is a very unique moment and yeah. will be very interesting to see for example, one of the things that you see is the ethical awakening of tech workers. Yes. And so um, this tech company uh, like to think of themselves as a very liberal place. Uh, 
and uh, they allow all kind of internal forum where, where employees were fairly free to express themselves. Mm. This is actually interesting because when I was at IBM, IBM was incredibly paranoid about unions. Mm. So any, if I had tried to use some internal forum to bring anything other than technical, it would be completely unacceptable. But somehow there was a much more freewheeling atmosphere in some of these tech companies. And they have now are, are starting to raise their voice, their ethical voice. I mean, there was a protest. They said a certain, you know, they, they were not employees, not happy with how Google was handling sexual harassment cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they don't like the idea of Google going back to China, China. when it allowing them to censor, censor the, the, the search engine. I think actually this is, you know, you suppress something, it goes some, somewhere else. The real ethical question is to ask about the business model of Google, which is based on what, what Google and Facebook are the epicenter of what has become known as surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. Okay, this, this, this what was, what it was a brilliant idea in the, you know, in the early 2000s, how to monetize the search engine, let's use advertising, has evolved into surveillance capitalism and, uh, which has been immensely profitable. Mm. I mean, Google still, Alphabet still makes most of its money on, they do all other projects, but the bread and butter of this company is, is micro, micro-targeted advertising, yeah. which is just basically, uh, surveying, surveilling everything that we do online and offline even. Okay. They have agreement with other, they have agreement, it came out, they have agreement with MasterCard to give them data. What do you buy offline? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. They want to know what they want to know all, all about you, because the better they target advertising yeah. to you, the more, the more you know. They are basically the more clicks. Yeah. They want you to click. Yeah. And so to click, they need to know much more about mm-hmm. you because they want to know what will make Geraldine click yeah. here. Mm. And so this this uh, employees suddenly, I suspect this is I'm speculative. Suddenly realizing, oh my goodness. Maybe we're working to a company that's not very ethical, but they cannot come until Google abolish the advertising business model because this is what Google is. And so instead, let's not go to China, let's do sexual harassment. Then sexual harassment, you know, all of these could say are good cases, but they're, they're ignoring there's the elephant. The, there's yeah, an elephant in the room. I was going to say there's right? still the elephant. There's an elephant yeah. in the room. So all this raises questions too about what's the definition of computer science. Because I know that this is an ongoing debate in lots of computer science faculties. So uh, people from my area, human-computer interaction, HCI, um, we a lot of people I speak to have the experience of feeling like uh, they're often regarded as not core computer science and, you know, a bit fringe and a bit soft. And I think that this is one of the disciplines that has been concerned for the, the human aspects of computing and way beyond usability for a long time now. But have, has it been concerned with societal impact? If um, there was, I may have missed it. I yes, agree. This is, yes. I, this is not on my mind. But I have, you know, I've, the people that I see, again, it's a lot about, it's a lot about humans, but not about society. Yes. There's a difference in my Indeed. mind. Indeed. And I, I see a shift happening as well yeah. where the, concerns that people are embracing are getting broader and broader and we need to sort of broaden them out but it's sort of more generally you know like with your interests in and your talking that you're doing about 
AI and ethics and you know, the future of work and machines and things. Um, do you consider that as part of your computer science identity or is it you've got your computer science identity and then you do this other stuff at the side that grows out of your passion, you're maybe left, going back to your roots? Left brain, right brain, I don't know. I mean, it is now a big, it's now a big part of what I'm doing. Mm. Um, I mean, there was, there was a, you know, part of the journey, I have to say, the part of the journey, I mentioned, I mentioned the Watson, but another part of the journey is when in 2008, I became editor-in-chief of communication of the ACM. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there is suddenly, I'm, I'm trying to develop magazine with incredible breadth yeah. that will appeal to have, because before that it was perceived as too narrow and not, not interesting enough to the larger community of competing professionals. So it gives me tremendous amount of exposure to um, more than just, a, more than just a, my own research area. Actually, the way I became editor-in-chief was that in... In 2004, I was a, a, a board member of the Computing Research Association. And the issue of offshoring at, oh, at the time was yes. a hot topic. Yes, yes. IT is offshoring. Yes. And somehow there was a fear that, that computing as a profession in developing country is over. Everything will be done in, in India, essentially. And... Um, there was some discussion, and I must have been very passionately said, we should find out exactly what's going on. So ACM, after that, ACM, there was a ACM CEO was, was, a, was in the meeting, and he came to me and says, can I ask you to chair a task force to, to study offshoring? So from 2004, 2006, we did that. The report came up in 2006, and it was the report, because it was about jobs, it was it received tremendous amount of more than anything technical that I would ever done. You know, mm. this end up with a New York Times editorial on the subject. Right. Okay. There's nothing that I could have done technically would get this kind of uh, this kind of exposure. And so I already had a sense of the again that jobs is something incredibly important to people. And that's why when I start thinking about the consequence of, of AI, mm. it was very much about yeah. also looking yeah. at uh, the issue of, uh, of jobs. And I think that I, I would want to make an argument, I don't know what you would think about this, but just in the way that you said you will teach ethics to your students in a different way than if you had someone from the ethics department because you, you of course, will be bringing in some of the theories and perspectives, but you will be then saying, and what does it mean for practice? What does it mean when it comes to coding this particular algorithm or system? And you'll be able to interpret it, you know, giving them examples and helping them walk through their own practices. And so, you know, for me, that sort of says that these sorts of issues need to be a core, become a core part of computers. I, I think computer it's a science, computer it's a, education. As a discipline, we all have to start asking, what's our responsibility? This has yeah. now become a big issue. What's our responsibility? Yeah. You know, again, most of us were doing this technical, doing graphic, doing logic, doing, doing HCI. Mm. But I think this is, this is different. Mm. This is really starting to understand what is our, our, our social responsibility. And I think what, what we'll, we're going to see here, what we see here already now with this uh, issue of the genetic engineering, that 
Other people started to ask, what, what, is our, what is our social responsibility? It's not just about computing. What's interesting to me is that uh, other students at Rice suddenly start to feel, what's our social responsibility? Mm. Mm. And I think this, this is something, you know, we're talking about, you know, if we kind of can segue to, to the topic of academic. I think it's a general question that academic should ask. Mm. What's our social responsibility? Because the reality is that... Uh, most of us are really, in some sense, we're public servants. We don't like to think this way, but yes, we're paid we are all, somehow we're, we're, from the public paid, purse. We are paid, we are paid mm. at the end of the day, we are paid somehow from the yeah. public purse. Yeah. So the question is, okay, what is our social responsibility, not just as computer scientists, yeah. what are social responsibility as, as, uh, as academics? And I don't think as academic we think this way. An academic very much focus on... on you know, mm. I, have to, I have to do my PhD, I, yeah. to do my PhD, I have to produce papers, yeah. I, have to get, uh, I have to get tenure, I have to be this, I have to be this. It's very kind of uh, self-focused on, very mm. career-oriented. Yeah. And if you say, well, what's your, what's your social responsibility? It's not part of our vocabulary, and I think it, it should be part of our vocabulary. Because mm. I think a, it can also shape the technical problems that we challenge. Yeah, because the, these social implications can have um, consequences back for the, the what we're solving, you know, in our technical areas. This, you know, yes, it should. We will see how it unfolds. I mean, there is a of people who are who are contrasting AI with IA, where AI is artificial intelligence, so it's a replacement of of human intelligence. Mm. And I is intelligence augmentation. Mm. So that is to complement and augment people. Um, you know, we, I think we will have to come to grips with these questions that uh, very much are still very much open. Yeah. But just to give another example, there was a, a conference, uh, the Computer Science Association meets every other year, and they have a panel on diversity. And diversity in computing usually means we have percentage of women is in the teens usually, minorities even less, and they brought a very distinguished panel, a university president and people like that. And then I stood up at the end, I said, okay, this is it's a very, very important question, but there's a bigger issue in our society, which is, if you look at the profession of computing, it serves a very small uh, segment of the population, and this segment does quite well. I mean, for them, this is they're, they're going to do well. But we are leaving behind a whole bunch of people. They don't have the technical skill to deal with it. And they feel left behind. They're not doing well economically. They are, we see the part of the rise of populism is these people who are feeling left behind. So when we talk about diversity, why are we just focusing very narrowly rather than looking at inclusion in a bigger way? Yeah. And so this was the distinguished panel, and four distinguished people sat there like deer caught in the headlight, uh-huh. just looking this. And they have thought a lot about diversity, and they had nothing to say about inclusion. I, I mean, really, they said that they had nothing to say about mm. inclusion. And so, again, if we look at, uh, at what we do as, as people who teach computer science, who do computer science research, it's great for us, it's great for the other people who study computer science. What about the people in, 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 in uh, rural areas in the UK, a rural area in the United States, I don't know, probably Australia, mm. 
same issues come up, I think, different places in the yes. country. Yeah. We are pushing society fast, focusing on particular class of skills. But 20% of the population is doing well, and about 80% are left behind. Mm. It's a whole different angle from the jobs, but same in a similar way, this same root cause. Yeah. In yeah. the role of technology in shaping those shifts and that accessibility. It just, I think one of the things, it just happened very fast. Mm. It just happened, you know, technology always changes society. This is not new. I mean, this mm. has been going for yeah. a long time. We have a, a, dance in, in, a dance between technology, culture, and society, and it's mm. been going on for since the invention of, since yes. the discovery of fire, but it's just moving very fast now. Very fast. Even, even the, Satya, the CEO of, of Google, said, he said, I'm worried that we are pushing change on society. We means Google pushing change on society faster than society can absorb it. And this is the CEO of Google is worried mm. the change is, tough, mm. is too fast. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, the, it's the speed that makes yeah. it so difficult for yeah. us to, to adapt and deal with it. Yeah. yeah. It is a really interesting inflection point. I think it's a very, ways. you know, I think history will look at just at this period and, and what happened, and it's a combination of things. I think it's a, first of all, I mean, just political events. I mean, Brexit and, and Trump. In fact, after the Brexit vote, so Brexit was, and, and Trump won the nomination, happened almost at the same yeah. time. And I told my friend in the US, you know, Trump may win. After Brexit, I said, you know, Trump may win. And people says, no way, you're crazy. You know, he's crazy. No, it's not going to happen. And I was actually planning to hold a, a summit on technology and work in DC in December of 2016. And I said, no, I don't know what, I don't know what DC will be like. So we held off and we only, and in fact, originally we are planning to have a, a summit where we are going to bring with a, policy thinkers and makers. And we decide after that we don't want policy makers because we don't know what they will say and how they will react. Mm. And so we kind of pivoted and we make it a conference for policy thinkers and we waited, we pushed it a year later, we pushed it to December of 2017. Mm. Not because I knew, I just said, I now, after that, I think it, it could happen. Yeah. And many people woke up after the election and said, how did it happen? I mean, and suddenly people start paying attention to the, the working class people in the United States. I think people are paying attention to working class people in, uh, in the UK. These are two really two pivotal, these two votes. Yeah. I think, you know, crisis uh, sharpens the mind. We, we ask what happened. And still there's no, there's no, it's not as if a clear a picture has emerged. There's still debate. People are discussing what yeah. happened. But one of the things that we see that, that uh, I would say kind of the, the elite, and we don't usually feel we're part of the elite, but there is society, you can roughly divide society, there are about 20% are educated professionals. They're usually, the, they're usually urban, they usually have uh, not just a bachelor degree, but very often a post-baccalaureate degree. Mm. And these people will live in a bubble, because if you just look at your social circles and you see that your family is professional and most likely your children are educated professionals mm-hmm. and your friends are all educated professionals. So 
you know, I remember after after the election, people says, how could have how Trump could have won? Mm. No one voted for him. I don't know anybody that voted for Trump. And indeed, in their world, nobody voted for Trump. Yeah. And so, for us, it came as a shock because we rarely see things outside of our bubble. So this punk, punctured the bubble, and people start. And some books in the United States, some books came around, try, telling. I don't know if you heard, for example, a book called Hill, "Hillbilly's Elegy." No. It was a book that came by somebody who came from Appalachia and get out and became, I think, a venture capitalist somehow, and wrote a memoir about about the world that, in which he came from. And I meet, once in a while, I meet even in academia, I meet people who came out of working class background and kind of managed to get and get mm. good education. Mm. And you talk to these people, and they say, yeah, I, I go to my family in the holiday, and it's I'm I'm in a different world. I go to Thanksgiving to to my family, and yeah. I cannot open yeah. my mouth about politics because you know yeah. I'm in just a different world. Which is ironic that we're in this age of social media where our abilities potentially by to te- technically enabling connection with all sorts of people, we're just increasing our bubbles. Yes, you think Closing that this will give us. Will, this, you think that we'll be able to yeah. see more, but see in more, fact, hear more. But this one of the complaints yeah. about about, yeah. about social media, and yeah. basically, they know that they want to, they want you to engage mm. and engage. It turns out, we really don't like other opinions. Yeah. Theoretically, yes. Yeah. And so I've I've kind of made a resolution on Facebook that unless someone is what we call a troll, you know, really kind mm-hmm. of unpleasant with their opinions. Mm-hmm. And what else do I do that? I mean, I have some criteria, for example, clear anti-Semitism. I, I kick, mm-hmm. but very few people, most of the time I say, okay, I will, I, I don't like it, but I will, I have to be exposed to it. Yeah. So I have some idea of what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Okay. Um, took me a while to learn to not to react to, yeah. when you see some of the things. I learned never, never argue on Facebook. It doesn't take you anywhere. So, but there's a, there's a, you making choice about how you use the technology and suppose yes. it's not the technology that's determining. We've had that debate forever and ever. Yeah. It's you making a choice about how you're going to take advantage of that access to people, whether to close yeah. it off or open it up. And also then learning the, the social skills about how to engage in those discussions. Yeah. And but, where your boundaries are. But, but, uh, but in some sense, uh, this is part of the problem with Facebook. It, it, it should give you more options. It does not give you enough options. Mm. There's one one particular thing that just annoys the heck out of me. Do you ever use Facebook? I'm a very bad Facebook user. Okay. But here's the thing moon. that you should notice. When you see a posting in Facebook, and many people just post news items, it scrapes the information. What does it do? It, you, 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 you drop a link on Facebook. It has a scraper. It goes, and it presents to you the information in its own Yes. Even if you put a, a web page, yes. it does not just, it does copy the web page, it scrapes it out and presents you the information in its own app, okay? It doesn't show the date. Yeah. It, ex, it gets out, it takes all kind of information, the source, it gets, the date is easy to find. It does not show you the mm. date. And this drives me crazy because mm. they should do that. If they were just a little more responsible. Mm. And I've tried to tell many people that have some connection. I said, just yes. put the damn date. <laughs> and there was actually a very interesting case. I don't know if you know who Dennis Ritchie is. Dennis mm. Ritchie is one of the developers of Unix. He's famous computer personality. Mm. He received a Turing Award 
he died twice. Did he? Dennis Ritchie died twice. The first time he died was in 2011. And he died then. You know, this is the way of the world. And people wrote obituaries and uh, he died. In 2015, somebody posted, somebody discovered, oh my goodness, he died. I didn't know about it. Somebody posted an article. But it doesn't show the date. And people said, people forget. Oh, Dennis Ritchie died. And people shared it. And it went viral again. And so he died again. And in fact, this was so interesting that somebody wrote an article about the second death of Dennis Ritchie. And all of this because Facebook is irresponsible corporation. So decontextualizing the information, probably not having related links as well. Yeah, yeah. you see the something. Oh, and people forget. In fact, well, I yeah. told the story to someone, and they said, oh, Dennis Ritchie died? I didn't know. <laughs> so, you know, you know, you know no, we forget. <laughs> lots of information in our life, you know, lots of information yeah. in our life. It's not someone that, yeah. you know, you just forgot that it happened. The human impact on his family as well. Yeah, I don't know. That's that a good again, question. I don't know what happened mm, when suddenly yeah. it's in the news. He died. Yeah. Four years later, he dies again. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the end of part one. We then shift tack and move on to a whole different topic where I ask him about uh, reflecting back on what are the changes that he's seen over his academic career. And as I said at the beginning, this second half is quite different and much more general and, uh, to academic life and ex- so many interesting things to say. So please do go on and listen to part two when it comes out. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.